Welcome to Human Rights Education Now, a podcast series from Human Rights Educators USA. I'm your host, Bill Fernikes, a member of the National Steering Committee of HRE USA, a collaborative network to learn, teach, organize, advocate, and innovate for human rights education in the United States. This podcast aims to raise awareness about human rights education and invites listeners to engage with the worldwide movement to make human rights education a core focus of educational programs from preschool through higher education and in both non-formal and informal community educational settings. This episode concludes our conversation with Sandy Sokot, founder and director of The World As It Could Be, a human rights education organization based in Northern California. Sandy discusses the relationship of human rights education to social justice, how human rights education intersects with local community issues and concerns, and the importance of human rights education for young children. She also offers suggestions how to advance human rights education in the United States, based upon her work with The World As It Could Be and Human Rights Educators USA. I'd like to turn back to one other issue, though, before we move on to um, some other topics. You were heavily involved in uh, advocacy for women's leadership. How do you see your human rights education work connecting to that? Uh, Again, I think that I've been doing that for quite a long time, but I would not have had the vocabulary at the time. So early in my, uh, when I came I came out of working at Bank of America, uh, where I had learned, uh, I had been working on my MBA in finance, and I wound up working at Bank of America, where I was learning how to use numbers to model um, investment in electronic projects. And then I was working in a department where my job was to have the senior managers provide their plans and budgets to go before the senior management. And uh, I decided I wanted to take that process and bring it to the small business community so that small business owners could have that understanding. And I also wanted to bring it particularly to women as to how to better manage their own finances. And so I think um, it was as early as 1985, I believe, I a colleague of mine and I put on a workshop for women that we called on becoming financially competent. And the whole point of that, because I had observed in some of the consulting work I was doing that women were suffering from the sort of stereotype behaviors that women aren't supposed to know about money and women aren't supposed to make financial decisions in their family. And yet this is such an important understanding to have in order to be economically self-sufficient and even whether you're running a business or or taking care of yourself and so that was actually a driving force to me um, as part of my early work uh, that I wanted to bring what I knew in the financial business management world to women particularly for their personal lives and then helping women in business uh, as to how to use good decision making tools for for being profitable and I was very fortunate. I actually won an award from the Commission on the Status of Women for Women Who Make a Difference um, because of that work with women. Uh, And that has been 
part of my passion uh, for forever. <laughs> Do you see those same type of issues being pervasive today with younger women? Um. Yes, and we we do you know we do a rite of passage. Well, we we stopped with the pandemic, but we have been doing an after school rite of passage program. Uh, and I would be involved. The teacher from a royal high school, a different teacher, was running that, but I would come as part of just being kind of a mentor and a participant. Mm-hmm. And in that after school rite of passage, what we were doing was teaching kids about what it means to be part of a healthy community using the UDHR as the framework for that. And part of their effort is not only learning about why should there be recreation? Why should you care about the arts? Why should you care about education? Um, why should you care about your career and health? And and then taking a look at what was going on in their community to have a community action project. But part of what we did was financial literacy. And I presented that to the kids. And um, and I went over with them what they needed to know about how to do a budget. Why, why do they need this information for making good decisions for themselves? And the kids, you know, they, they often said afterward they were so relieved to have this information. They did not know. They did not understand what it meant for figuring out how to budget, how many, how many, how you could spend money for clothes um, and not get yourself into debt and why it was so important to have that understanding. Um, so I think that that is not being taught well enough uh, in, in our educational world to, to teach young people how to take care of themselves financially um, mm-hmm. and, and navigate making good decisions for their life um, so they're not vulnerable to credit card uh, solicitations when they get out right. of high school. Mm-hmm. Put them into terrible financial straits. There, there really still needs to be yeah. a lot of. So, so looking back at your many years now in the field, uh, what would you say are some guidelines or insights you might have to say to HRE USA? Here's where we need to go in human rights education. What would be a couple of priorities? I, I do think finding ways uh, to collaborate with other what other groups that are consider themselves social justice organizations. I mean, finding collaborative efforts. I I'm hoping we could do this virtual meeting that you had suggested actually as part of celebrating the 75th anniversary that connects social that we connect social justice and human rights to look at what's a threat to our democracy right now and to have a collaborative discussion on among organizations that might not necessarily work together, but yet share a common issue as to how we could do something together. I feel like doing more of that would be a very positive way of demonstrating the power of human rights, of the human rights framework. Um, I think that's probably one of the the biggest uh, kind of steps that I think would be important to not just think that all we're about is trying to get human rights education into schools. But as part of that, that it's bringing a broader awareness of how the framework is connected to to day in and day out issues. Um, And perhaps that even for the greater public to understand that Um, because we need the public 
to support human rights education in their schools and to see why that's important. And I think so even... Have, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, well, even connecting with... I know we've connected in our curriculum with why social-emotional learning is such an important part of education because you have to have kids kind of capable of understanding why respect for another person is important, how to have empathy for other situations. Otherwise, you can learn about human rights, but it won't mean anything if you don't have a place for it to have some context. And I think doing more with other groups that are doing that kind of work would be beneficial as well. Right. So there are other educational settings that often are neglected, like museums or right. uh, public public parks, uh, you know, religious communities, things of this sort. Do you see potential there for this type of activity? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that um, really gaining, uh, helping people doing different efforts to see that their work is directly connected to human rights and human rights education is not only helpful to their work, but it's helpful to HRUSA. We, we've been doing at the World As It Could Be this new initiative called The World As It Could Be Four Questions at a Time. And we're interviewing leaders of other nonprofits to showcase their work. But in the course of our questions, one of our questions is, how is your work connected to the principles of the UDHR. And so um, it's been wonderful. We're, you know, we're about to publish our, our third that we're doing, but we have very, you know, disparate organizations that you might say, well, they're not a human rights organization and they may not have thought of themselves that way until they start talking about how their work is directly connected to human rights principles. So I feel like doing more of that type of thing in different institutions would be helpful all the way around. Now, of course, you know, there are many challenges on the national level these days, whether it's discrimination against minorities of color, anti-Semitism, um, refugees, and so forth. And the U.S. is actually a signatory to a number of these international human rights treaties, but they haven't taken very much effort to use them or deploy them. So if you had to select one issue, what would you say would be the most significant issue where maybe the federal government could leverage some influence here? Oh, boy. Uh, there are a number. Um, I, I don't know. One, one might be the right to an education and to really support, you know, to see how we could do more to support the importance of public education and what what that means in terms of the full development of the person and to <clears throat> programs that that foster that uh, having a, a truly informed critical thinking um, electorate I, I feel like that right now is is a vital one or even I mean I think that the role of information and I know one of the big issues is uh, misinformation that is being spread with social media and I feel like this is a place where the federal government could certainly play a role it's part of it's part of education it's part of how people learn about things how to make decisions how to vote and the public air our public airwaves are being used 
to pass along misinformation. Mm-hmm. I think the government has a role to play in perhaps bringing back uh, the, um, I think it's the uh, freedom doctrine or it, it, that existed under the FCC where anybody using our airwaves presenting themselves as news had to show both sides of an issue. Mm-hmm. I feel like to me, that would be something to look at. Yeah, I mean, I think you raise an important issue about what it means to have actual truthful information, which is verifiable empirically, and you can actually use that information to generate meaningful conversations and judgments. Um, So keeping that in mind, you have also just authored a book chapter, co-authored a book chapter, and can you talk a little bit about what you and Rosemary Blanchard did and how that sort of relates to HRE? Yeah, uh, this was a just a wonderful collaboration. I am so grateful to Rosemary because she came to me. It's been almost, you know, it was like the fall of 2021, I guess. And she said, I think we should apply, do a proposal to have a chapter. And uh, this is a social studies text that it's a very long text name that I have to keep looking at um, my book. Um, The text is called Mindful Social Studies, Frameworks for Social Emotional Learning and Critically Engaged Students. And uh, so Rosemary suggested that we submit a chapter for that and um, that we have it as an opportunity to showcase what social, what, human rights education is in terms of supporting that kind of framework and specifically to highlight the world as it could be as an existing program that has a, has a robust curriculum and, and how that supports um, critically engaged, but critically engaged people. And so we called our chapter uh, the human rights portal to teaching mindfulness and, and, civic engagement. And Rosemary was the primary author of the part of explaining the whole human rights education framework and what that's about. I mean, I, you know, we, and then uh, my main part was explaining the connection, like how I developed the world as it could be, the context for that, because the context for it was as important as what we came up with. The fact that we saw how young people became excited and wanted to be engaged because they learned about this framework and that this was worth pursuing and that the arts were a vital part of that. And that should be part of helping support mindfulness as well as engagement. And so that that's the essence of our chapter. And uh, we're thrilled that we are considered part of being able to promulgate these ideas as part of having a society of teaching social studies with the idea of encouraging a a presence of mind of mindfulness conscious uh, student student experience and that they can use an understanding of human rights in our case the UDHR as that guide um, as a vehicle for being engaged in their communities well, as someone who uh, taught social studies for 36 years, I can say that what you're doing is long overdue. 
And I think it's going to be valuable with people who read that book and can then actually apply it in their practice. So, so. yeah, I think it will. So let's just uh, turn to our last questions here. And those are the ones that I give to every interviewee. Right. So uh, who would you say is the most influential role model for your HRA work, alive or not? Well, I have to say the most influential is Eleanor Roosevelt, um, because I always respected her work. Uh, but the fact that she managed to get this Universal Declaration of Human Rights adopted under many challenges uh, and and to see how vital and, and radical that document is in our world, um, I can't help but hold her out as a model uh, for for pursuing something, no matter what the challenges are. Okay, and then um, what would say is the most effective quote that sums up your view of the importance of human rights? Well, I'm going to quote Eleanor Roosevelt, and we, we often use it, and that is, where, after all, do human rights begin in small places close to home? And that is really what is behind my own thinking and the work of the world as it could be, where we really are encouraging uh, the people we connect with to see that the ideas of human rights are very, uh, very local, very personal, and that that what we do in our own way of being ripples out and and can actually affect how how the world operates. Okay, and then. Uh... If you had the power to make one critical change to advance HRE in this country, what would you do? Well, I'm prepared for this. <laughs> I thought about this. I would require all congressional leaders, all federal employees, um, and of course, I would love it could be at a state level as well. Anybody that has a job in government that they would be required to learn about the UDHR, what the history of it, and they'd be required to write some type of statement as to how learning about this connects to their work. Uh, that, that's, that's a very interesting approach, I think, because uh, <laughs> last year or two years ago when I was teaching the course at Rutgers, my class on human rights education, I asked Nancy Flowers to be a guest speaker. And we were had, we were talking about this exact question and she asked me the question. So I said, I think the most important thing would be to have members of the law enforcement community be educated about human rights. So it's interesting because you're talking on a much broader level, but they're sort of in the same ballpark. It's kind of like I, I actually once when I went to visit the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island, I don't know if you've been to them, mm -hmm. but I, I did go. I actually went with my mother who came to Ellis Island um, as a 14 year old from, mm -hmm. and saw her boat. And at that time, I thought, you know, everybody that serves in our Congress should be required to make this trip. Mm -hmm. they, they need to be they need to go up. The Statue of Liberty, and they need to visit Ellis Island so they can understand this key part of our country. And I feel like I still believe that. And I feel to go further, 
they also these these entities who are charged with representing what this country is supposed to be about need to understand the principles that that are a framework for guiding it and we are a signatory we help make the universal declaration we should know why that's important and mm-hmm. how that could actually influence what we do well i think that's a great idea and i it wouldn't take that much to do actually because it would require simply that there be a training program in place for federal employees and for members of congress and uh I think you'd have, uh, certainly you'd have resistance from some people, but I think overwhelmingly you'd have much more enlightenment right? than you would right now, because certainly right now there's nothing. Right. And it's a lack, you know, if you don't know something, right. then you don't know what you're missing. It's like you don't know what you don't know. And in this case, if you have people who are simply unaware of, of what, in this case, the UDHR is, and what it was meant to do and what it could do, um, then it's, you know, knowledge is everything. Information and knowledge is is, the, is a path to light. As yeah, the and the United States <laughs> is a signatory to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and it requires that you educate the country about it, but we don't do it. The federal government's taken that as a not, a really, they don't, feel obligated to do it at all so that's been demonstrated in the reports to the uh you know the united nations but at least at this point i think uh we're starting to uh change that conversation albeit one at a time hopefully yeah i think i um one of the people we interviewed for our four questions at a time is erwin kula who is a Eighth generation rabbi out of New York City. He runs a program called Clow. And I first met him uh, in 2008. He came out to present on his book, Yearnings Embracing the Sacred Messiness of Life. And he talked about wanting to use Jewish wisdom not to attract more Jewish people, but to apply it for the betterment of all people. And I spotted him as a deadhead, a Grateful Dead fan. And connected with him when I bought the book, I said, you know, you, I felt like I was at a Grateful Dead concert and took out, stood up, took out his wallet and said, I carry the tickets to my favorite show all the time. So I communicated with him because our program uses the sort of structure of the B'nai Mitzvah, the Bar Mitzvah, Bat Mitzvah idea that it, uh, people take responsibility for the UDHR to further. And I asked him about that this was in 2008 and he said absolutely you have to do it it's you've got the public high school you've got the sacred text is the udhr and all you need is a party and food good shape so we interviewed him just a few weeks ago for our four questions at a time and he he shed this light about the fact that you have to you have to know that things can take a long time Mm Because I said, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever going to learn about this UDHR the way they're supposed to. And he said, Sandy, it can take thousands of years for something to become a sacred text. But don't despair. You have to do what you can do while you're alive and realize that many things are going to live way past what you created. That, you know, but this is part of the world we're in that you, you must when you see something, work on it and and persevere. 
and uh, and do what you can while you can. I mean, he's got a lot of, he says it a lot better than I'm saying it now, but that was very inspiring. Well, I think you're right. And I think he's right. It's perseverance, patience, and uh, keeping your eye on the ball, as they say in baseball. Right. Well, tomorrow I'll close with this and where it might fit. We're having the culmination presentation of a second grade class mm. uh, at the Cesar Chavez Elementary School. We're doing a project with this uh, teacher there who's been part of our world since 2011. She's a visual artist, has been teaching kindergarten and second grade using our curriculum with her little kids that to, to help kids gain an understanding of human rights. So our project is called I am me and I am part of us. And they've been learning about, it's to augment what they're learning about valuing themselves as people, how to be respectful to each other, and also to understand their personal story, their legacy. That's part of their social studies. So um, tomorrow they're going to do a presentation in front of a couple of other second grade classes, their families. I'm bringing food for the celebration. Mm -hmm. They're going to get a book of the poems that they wrote about mm -hmm. I am, as well as the collective poem that they're going to read. And they did a beautiful mural that depicts mm -hmm. what they are as part of their community. Mm -hmm. And we're making it here for them that they're going to have. And I feel like, you know, no matter what age kids, they, you know, they, they've really gained a sense of themselves and an enthusiastic part of who they are despite a lot of other obstacles they've been dealing with. And I'm really happy that we're going to get to celebrate that with them tomorrow. They're going to be really happy. <laughs> well, that's a great way to end our conversation. And I wish you all the luck with that. And thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Human Rights Education Now. You can find additional information about this podcast series at www.hreusa.org. Each episode is available on the HREUSA podcast page, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Player FM, and Deezer. They will soon be available on YouTube and SoundCloud. You can also download each episode as an MP3 file. If you have questions or comments about this podcast, send them to Christy, K-R-I-S-T-I at H-R-E-U-S-A.org. Our podcast team includes host and producer Bill Fernickes, executive producer Christy Redalius Palmer, editor Elizabeth Schwab, sound designer and project manager Sabrina Sanchez, communications and public outreach coordinator Jessica Terbruggen, and production coordinator Jasmine Chizu Gotha. The Human Rights Education Now logo was designed by Kim Berering. Human Rights Education Now is a production of Human Rights Educators USA, a project of the Center for Transformative Action in Ithaca, New York.